Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follier Different, and we continue our run of legendary authors. On today's episode, the uh, author of the brand new smash hit, Samsung Rising, Jeffrey Kane, is with us. And he takes us into both South and North Korea, what it's like to live in both places. Uh, he has some fascinating insights on North Korea. And then as it relates to South Korea, how this relatively small country gained outsized economic power. And of course, how Samsung grew from a fish market to a uh, mega multinational corporation that has almost three times the employees of Apple. And we get into all of it, how Samsung became Samsung, uh, what's going on broadly in uh, Asia. We talk, of course, about the coronavirus, the battle for worldwide supremacy in AI. And Jeffrey uh, has some amazing insights. You know, for years, the United States as a region has been the category queen of technology. And now uh, that dominance in tech is uh, under threat from companies like Samsung. And so there's a ton here that I think you're going to find absolutely fascinating. And, uh, you know, Jeffrey's new book, Samsung Rising, really reads like a novel. Now, one thing is crystal clear in this environment that we're in. Digital companies and digital government agencies outperform enterprises that don't leverage the power of data. And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. Splunk is the category queen of data to everything. They help bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. You can learn how to turn data into doing at S-P-L-U-N-K slash D, the number two E, as in data to everything. That's Splunk.com slash D to E. Also, in these uncertain times, it's critical that you have the visibility and control that you need in your business. And that's where my friends at Oracle NetSuite come in. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And with NetSuite, you get your financials, cash flow, cash position, accounts receivable, payroll, inventory, order management, and omni-channel commerce, and more, all in one place. So you have clear visibility and total control over what's going on in your business. To receive your free guide, Managing Business Uncertainty, and schedule your free product tour right now, visit netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Korea is a country that uh, I was in for about five years on and off from 2009 to 2016. And Korea, as I know it, is um, a fascinating place, just such a fascinating country because, uh, you know, I'll be walking around, I'll be um, leaving my home in a place called uh, Hebangchon, which is right near, it means Liberation Village, and it's right nearby the U.S. military base in Seoul. I, I just find Korea such a fascinating place because I'll leave my apartment and I'll, you know, walk down the street and, you know, there will be a military base there and there will be, uh, you know, rowdy parties and rowdy drinking. There's this one element, you know, this one part of Seoul. But then, um, you know, as I would go on my walk, maybe I'd get on the bus and I'd go out to the, the foreign press center, which is where I worked most days. And, you know, I'll be standing in this square. It's the central square of Seoul. 
And there are massive protests. There are constantly demonstrations. Um, people will be upset either about, you know, they'd say Samsung has too much power or companies have too much power or labor unions are being treated badly or uh, the president needs to be impeached, which actually happened, or, you know, the environment. Um, just rowdy, raucous protests that's never ending. It's just incredible the, 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 the level of democracy that people have and, and how seriously they take it. I'm always impressed by it. How would it compare to maybe a place like, I don't know, it seems like every time you see something about France, they're protesting something or they're on strike or, you know, so there's a very, I don't know what you describe them as, a very engaged citizenry on a, a wide range of topics. Is Would it be similar or, or how it might it compare to a European example? I think it's uh, it's very similar to France. And even if you look at the governments and these societies, uh, you know, the French have the system of Charles de Gaulle, or they call it de Gaullism. And it's a system in which the executive has uh, enormous power compared to other democracies. And there aren't really as many, um, you know, state institutions that people can go to, you know, you can't go to the local office and, and, you know, get something done that easily in a place like France, which is known for its bureaucracy. Korea is very similar. And I think that that's why Koreans protest so much. I think it's because they don't feel that their government is always working for them and that, you know, they can't, they don't feel that they can go into their local pension office that easily or go into their local education office and, you know, petition to get what they need or, you know, go through the process. Um, I think that Korean democracy is quite young. It was only 1987 that Korea became a democracy. And it wasn't until many years later that it really became a full democracy. I mean, it was a corrupted democracy for a long time. But the the fascinating thing about this, and this is what really drew me into Korea, was the fact that I would be standing in this square, which is called Gwanghwamun. And, you know, I could turn north and look north. And I would realize that, well, you know, about 45 minutes, an hour drive away from here is the border with North Korea. It's called the demilitarized zone, the DMZ. It's one of the most heavily mined places on earth. Bill Clinton visited um, many years ago and famously said that it's the scariest place on earth. Uh, you go there. So I, I would go there. I, I went there many, many times. Um, I would do some tours with the U.S. military. I, I went there as a reporter. I was reporting on you know military exercises and North Korean missile launches. And every time I went, the U.S. military made me sign a document that said that if I am killed or incapacitated on this trip, it is my fault. And I cannot hold the U.S. military accountable for getting blown up in some freak war accident or something. Um, and so it's a, it's a little more severe than like a zip lining waiver. I, just a little, just a little. Jeffrey, paint a picture for me. Of course, I've never been there and probably actually I can probably say with virtual certainty, I'm never going. So you know, t paint the picture. What does it look like when you're standing in the DMZ? So I'm standing on the edge of a government or military building. Uh, let's say, you know, I'm, I'm on a ledge somewhere. It's like a balcony and I'm looking out over the DMZ. I have binoculars. I'm peering into North Korea. So on the South Korean side, I'll look over behind me, which is South Korea. And I'm looking at lush green trees and, uh, you know, city blocks and, you know, noise and cars, you know, if I were to look southward far enough, uh, I'm not saying right there at the DMZ, um, you know, I, I see law and order, I see, you know, military police, I see 
um, you know, I'll be, I'll be sitting there having a, a coffee with a local military MP and, you know, he's telling me about how long he's been stationed there. And then uh, I'll gaze out at the north and I'll see barren landscape. No trees. They've been all cut down and a lot of them have been cut down in North Korea. Um, I'll see Potemkin villages. I have an idea as to why, but why would the trees be cut down? Because uh, North, so the North Korean economy collapsed about 30 years ago. There was a major famine. And since then, the country has just simply been devastated with poverty. So you cut down trees, you cut, you, you get what you can. You, uh, you know, trees are often used. So they have this, the special kind of car engine that they use there since there are oil shortages. And uh, they'll put a log in this truck. It's hard to explain how exactly it works, but somehow they're able to use logs that they've cut down and they can actually you know move a truck with that so somehow they're supplementing oil with trees to fuel vehicles yes yes and you can look it up wow i had no idea yeah and i've also been to north korea i've actually been inside the country i spent uh one time i spent about two weeks there i took a train through north korea guided by government minders who were giving me propaganda constantly and uh, i saw these trucks i looked at the train and I saw this smoke billowing up from the trucks and I asked my government propaganda guide, uh, are those trucks on fire? What's going on? And he said, no, 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 they're just really smart. They take logs and they put it in the truck and then they can, you know, move forward. They've got combustion from that. And, and there's evidence to suggest by the lack of trees that this is actually what they're doing. So it's not, uh, I, I'm just giving one example, but the deforestation in Korea has been pretty bad. Uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, there, there's illegal logging, there's deforestation, you know, large scale uh, logging that goes on and selling this to China. Um, it, the North Korean government is a very corrupt government. And, you know, I don't think that the environment is really cared for in a lot of places there. there so I did visit some places in North Korea that actually are truly stunning and full of nature. Uh, I was in the northeast area, which is far up near near the Russian and Chinese frontier, an area that used to be called Manchuria. And yeah, there are um, lots of beautiful mountains, but when you're at the DMZ and when you overlook, you know, past that border with your binoculars into what is actually North Korea, it's barren landscape, it's emptiness, it's, um, it's little Potemkin villages that are, you know, that were built there to show that things are supposed to be normal, but I, I, I've very rarely seen people hanging out in those places. They are known to be fake. I know you have a government escort or <laughs> propaganda person, but do you get any kind of an insight into what life might be like for the average North Korean on, on the average day? You get insight into what the lives of your guides are like. And you got to remember that um, not everybody in North Korea is poor and suffering. The guides come from what are called the favored classes. So there are three classes in North Korea that everybody is put into. And the first one is the favored class. The second one is the wavering class. And the worst one is the hostile class. If you're in the top class, then you're more likely to get one of these jobs. You've been deemed loyal. And it usually means that your grandparents, you know, fought against America in the Korean War, you know, resisted Japanese rule in World War II. So it's via birth line primarily? Birthline is part of it. It's also your own track record. Um, you know, like there, there's a record. There's North Korea is one of those places where there's a record on everyone. And if you 
Um, you know, if you do something not so great, if you say if you make a mistake in your job or you're caught watching a foreign DVD that's been smuggled in, like Titanic used to be kind of popular in North Korea, they would smuggle in videos and watch it. But um, if you're caught doing this kind of thing, you'll be you won't be executed outright. Usually it's not that bad, but you'll get a slap on the wrist. Maybe you'll be sent to, uh, you know, late hard labor for a few weeks or a month, and then you'll lose your class status. It'll be ranked down. And then because of that, if you, uh, if you are not a part of the loyal class at the top anymore, um, then you could be sent to a different city to live. So Pyongyang, the capital is, um, it's a very, uh, it's a very pristine, clean city. I mean, there is poverty there, but it actually felt more to me like some kind of old science fiction novel where there's this dystopia and everything just seems way too perfect. You're just walking around and every people are smiling abnormally and looking at you and they play creepy music. Yeah, or Stepford Wivesy or that kind yeah, of a weird It has a Stepford Wives feel, like a Stepford Wives meets the Soviet Union type feel. Or, you know, meets like um I, I don't know, have you seen the uh The Man in the High Castle? No, I don't think I have. Okay. It's a uh, a Philip K. Dick novel, and I, I read the book, but it's one of those old sci-fi dystopias written in the 60s, and it's about this future world where uh, the U.S. has been conquered by Germany and Japan in World War II, so it's partitioned between the Japanese side and the German side. And I thought, I thought you know, it, it, it's just funny watching, you know, it, it, that show how, you know, things are, people go out of their way to make things look really normal, but they're actually not. I mean, they're actually Nazis right. who are pretending to be, you know, American patriots. And um, it, North Korea felt a lot like that. Like there's a veneer over everything and people are just really abnormal and kind of strange and not being forward with you. Um, and it, it feels like a one giant facade. I mean, I had no idea what actually was really a building that people were working in or what was just built there to show that North Korea was pretty you know, a pretty awesome place. Really? You think you could have been walking on mo a movie set for part of it? Part of it, yeah. I mean, there's even this big hotel in Pyongyang called the Rukyong Hotel. And it looks like something out of like Dr. Evil's lair or, you know, something out of Blade Runner. It's like this really, and I'll send you a photo after. It's this really bizarre looking hotel that stands over the Pyongyang cityscape. It's like a triangle. And it looks like something that like an old airplane would like zip by and in like Metropolis or one of those old movies. And uh, they started building it in the late 1980s and they, they never finished it. So it's this weird building, this strange, eerie, dark architecture right in the center of Pyongyang. And there's like no, no one in there. There's nothing there. It's just sitting there. And I, you know, I, I'm just sitting there wondering uh, how many buildings are like this? You know, how much of this is actually just made up for? propaganda wow and maybe i'm a crude rude stupid dude but i'll just ask the question the way it is in my head how much do you think life sucks for the average north korean on a day in and day out basis i think it does suck for the average north korean i think that um you know the average person and i'm not talking about you know the wealthier elites and the you know the, the political and economic elites the people who are making a lot of money from, you know, what's happening in China and places like that. If we're going to go back and look at just the regular person, it's, um, it's a miserable place. Um, the countryside, you know, is known to have, uh, malnourishment. Um, you know, I, I've been to the Chinese border with North Korea and I've, I've looked over and this is the serious border. This is a really poor region. And I've looked over into the North Korean border and, you know, I just see poverty over there. I mean, I, um, 
I can't go up that that up close, obviously, but to me, it just looks, you know, like barren homes and suffering, and the people look kind of malnourished and skinny. And I, I just, I, I really seriously doubt that the average North Korean has anything to be happy about if they're not some kind of wealthy elite in the capital. So the day we weren't born there was the best day of our lives. <laughs> it was the best day of our lives, and you know, in North Korea. I mean, they've had, they've been through a lot. They've had famine. You know, one million people died in a famine uh, about 30 years ago. And since then, it's just been, you know, a terrible, terrible place. Well, it's uh, fascinating to hear about your heart breaks for them. Uh, my, my buddy and legendary podcaster, Jordan Harbinger, has been there a couple times as well. He's sort of fascinated by the Korean culture. And so you're the second person that I've had a chance to chat with a little bit about this. But it... um it does make your heart break for those people who, by no fault of their own, just happen to be born there. It does. And I, it does make my heart break. I truly just feel that, you know, the North Korean people have suffered so much and suffered in unnecessary ways. You know, it's a result of the government. It's a result of their dictator who makes bad decisions that enrich himself. But then, you know, he sends you know, hundreds of thousands of people to concentration camps. And yet right there on the other side, correct me if I'm I'm wrong, uh, uh, you're the expert, but my sense of South Korea is uh, post the war, we now have a country that is incredibly vibrant, incredibly innovative, uh, entrepreneurial, uh, where many people live a good life. I certainly know from my own experiences there, you know, um, business is uh, thriving. Uh, did a little bit of business with Samsung myself and and the other thing I learned is there's a lot of good food and a lot of good drink and they like to go out and ha enjoy life and live a, uh, what seems to me to be, as you know, again, I don't have your experience, but you can have a very good life for yourself in South Korea. Am I plus or minus in the right direction? Totally plus in the right direction. South Korea is, um, you know, it's, it's a prosperous country. It does have problems of its own, but if you're going to put it next to North Korea, you know, there's no contest. Obviously, you know, South Korea is the place where people want to live. And, it, you know, it's it's not a success that came that easily. It wasn't this clear, you know, 40, 50 years ago, maybe a lifetime ago or a couple generations ago, whether South Korea would actually become what it is today. Uh, South Korea used to be a dictatorship. It used to have military coups. At one point, it was poorer than North Korea. Um, it was through what they call the miracle on the Han River. The Han River is what goes through uh, Korea that um, South Korea was really able to come out of nowhere and take on the world. And that's the story that one of the stories, at least, that I tried to tell uh, in my book, Samsung Rising, you know, the story of this nation that has never, you know, it's been overlooked in the past. It's, you know, it's small. It's been seen as inconsequential. It's this little peninsula um, you know, next to this major giant China and, you know, smashed right there with Japan, which is also a big power, uh, you know, subject to all kinds of wars and, and suffering in the past, but somehow managed to become this powerhouse of technology and economy and industry and democracy somehow was able to turn into something that was respected. And, you know, look, even recently with the Oscars, Parasite won and Parasite was produced by an heiress from the Samsung family. Samsung is the wealthiest company in Korea. You're on a point I find completely fascinating, which maybe we can dig into a bit. If you think about 
um, their role in the uh, economy uh, from a business context. And you think about the mega companies, obviously Samsung, which you're deeply uh, uh, knowledgeable about, but you know LG and their other major corporations that do uh, you know have massive um, businesses and is sort of. To me, it's like if GE and Apple were one company, maybe they'd be Samsung or I don't, I don't know. You'll tell me how to think about them. But there's a handful of these massive companies that have designed and dominated huge market categories that, to your point, you might expect would come from a China or a Japan uh, or, or, of course, a, a United States or Europe for that matter. But yet you have this relatively smaller country uh, with obviously this war-torn history and the two sides and the whole thing. So it's sort of maybe, I guess my point is, it doesn't feel like a predictable place to have sort of the global impact that these businesses are having. Yeah, it's not predictable at all. And that goes to what I was saying earlier about how few people and few outside experts thought that South Korea could emerge as this major powerhouse that it has become. Uh, So back when South Korea was first a nation, this was in 1948, it had a GDP about the size of Sudan's, which just goes to tell you how far South Korea has come. But it was a peninsula that was divided, a peninsula, a peninsula that had very few prospects. But through the creation and through the the drive of these conglomerates that are called the Chebol, which is a Korean word that means wealth clan, um, they were able to show that you know the free market that we're used to doesn't always work. The um, you know, the democracy that we're used to doesn't always work either. Uh, they were able to show that, you know, hard draconian, you know, export driven manufacturing authoritarianism is just, you know, it, it's sometimes, you know, being able to implement that and execute it fast, it makes a nation wealthy and prosperous really quickly if it's implemented the right way. And in that sense, and if this is, you know, unfair or stupid, feel free to kick me under the table. But South Korea is a little more like a company than a country in a way, right? It can, it can execute because of that. It, um, in some sense, it, and you'll tell me how to think about it, maybe it's a little Singaporean in that example, or to me, Singapore feels like some hybrid of a country and a corporation. But I, I don't know, you know this way better than I do. How do you think about it? I agree completely. I think that Korea at least traditionally, Korea was a kind of hybrid between these corporations and the government. And the way that uh, Korea was able to emerge so quickly was that the government would set these quotas. You've got to export X amount. We're going to give you the funding. We're going to give you the backing. We're going to create a consortium uh, you know, in steel or semiconductors or shipbuilding or uh, oil and petroleum refining. You know, they would choose these, these super um, risky industries that uh, with government backing make it made it possible because the government absorbed the risks of failure. So, you know, if, if a table failed, well, you know, they have the government behind them in the end. It's, it's almost like, I, I guess, the bailouts uh, in a way in 2008 with our economic crisis. Um, but it's venture capital with not so much of the venture and, and some of the capital provided by the government. <laughs> they've de-risked it, right? They've, they've de-risked it. But when it comes to, uh, you know, this long-term growth and, you know, the execution of these risky long-term business plans in these markets where prices are constantly fluctuating and you don't know five years down the line how things are really going to look, that semiconductors, you know, that's oil supplies. Um, it worked brilliantly because uh, the successful Chable 
if they did succeed and they met their quotas, they got more government backing, they got more government funding, they got more government support. So the government set up a system that works quite well for selecting these national champions. And they invested in them and they made the strong stronger. They, they bred them. They bred them. They bred them to be tough, you know, to be fighters, to be uh, militaristic. They, they, they share this military culture of extreme discipline and reverence to their founding families. Um, they also shared this culture of this rough-handed factory floor. So, you know, imagine a bunch of tough guys in a, in a really, you know, hot, sweaty factory just cranking out semiconductors or cranking out, you know, steel parts or one of these kinds of things. Like that, that was the Korean model. And they found ways to do it faster and quicker and uh, more reliably than a lot of other competitors in Japan and America. That's what led to this Korean economic miracle. And that's what allowed Korea and Samsung and Hyundai and LG to show their perfectionism to the world outside. And, and am I right in understanding, and again, if I'm not synthesizing it the way you want me to, then help, that sort of the deep intertwining of government, um, the social fabric as a result, and sort of entrepreneurship and, 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 and company and category and ultimately industry building, those things are deeply intertwined in a way that the business success was viewed as as the the the, com- the country's success, right? In the old days, what's good for GM is good for America, that there was this intertwining uh, of these things for the greater good. But but that's how I interpret it. Is it. How should I? I think that you're interpreting it right. So Koreans call their country the Republic of Samsung, at least that's the cynical way of looking at it. And they say that quite a bit, do they not? They do, they do. I heard it constantly when I was there. I mean, people would say, welcome to the Republic of Samsung. And, you know, let me show you my Samsung apartment that I live in and with my Samsung TV. But that's, um, that is what Korea is like. And it, it, so I do have to just clarify that it's changing. Um, people are a lot more skeptical of these cable groups like Samsung and Hyundai these days. But overwhelmingly, that Republic of Samsung still lives on. So, you know, I could wake up in the morning and just to give you uh, one example, you know, I could wake up and theoretically, um, you know, turn on my Samsung TV to a Samsung funded soap opera, and then there would be Samsung commercials constantly. And, uh, you know, I could eat a Samsung uh, breakfast that's prepared like a one of those prepared breakfasts and my put it in my Samsung microwave. Um, you know, I would be in my Samsung apartment complex, and I could go to a job. My job is at Samsung Life Insurance. Um, and then, you know, I'm selling life insurance all day. I can have a Samsung credit card. Uh, I can go to Samsung's fashion shop and their theme park on the weekend, take my kids and family, you know, to the Everland theme park, which is owned by Samsung. Um, you know, I, I, if I'm, if I'm sick, I'll go to the Samsung medical center. Uh, you know, I can send my kids to the Samsung university, which is called Sung Kyung Kwan, and they'll get a Samsung scholarship and they'll study at the Samsung library. Uh, like literally, I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, Samsung also, I learned they consult on a cemetery. <laughs> so they have cemetery consultants who help manage cemeteries for <laughs> the government. Uh, it's just, um, they, they have a wedding hall. So, I mean, if you want to get married, then Samsung can get you married too. They can, they can set up all this stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's a never ending. Do they have like Samsung, uh, Samsung, uh, uh, plastic surgeons and <laughs> what don't they have? The list of what they don't have is probably shorter, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know about plastic surgeons. 
that must make it, I don't know, you tell me, like a sort of a 1984-y weird living there, right? Or I don't know, how does it feel? That's uh, that's how it feels. I, I thought that South Korea, despite its success, is kind of a dystopia. Um, it's a place where, you know, it's, it's Blade Runner. You go out in the evening and the neon lights start turning on and you're walking down the street and, you know, there are certainly in, in Seoul many drunk people um, by the evening or by the nighttime. I'm not being a racialist when I say that the Koreans like to drink is my memory. Yeah, and actually I was looking at a, a few years ago, there was a statistic that was released and um, in terms of the number of shots that by country that people drink, Korea was the highest and they even beat out Russia. Russia was the second highest with vodka. But to be fair to Korea, the, the drink that they have, it's a, um, it's a rice and tapioca liquor called soju. And it tastes kind of similar to vodka, but it's, it's about half the strength of vodka. So, you know, I mean, they're drinking more than Russia. And is it a little sweeter? Am I remembering this right? right it is. Jeffrey? It is sweeter. And a lot of it is actually not very high quality alcohol. You, you have to go to a craft shop to get the real thing. But it's more designed to be cheap and, you know, it's like you kind of go out to the barbecue with your buds in the evening and drink this cheap liquor and you're just, you know, you're just trying to get smashed quickly and then you'll go home and fall asleep. Uh, I think, you know, the, the Korean lifestyle tends to be a very uh, high pressure one, long hours, high pressure. Uh, you know, you have to work uh, 12 hour, 15 hour days a lot of the time. And then after that, you're expected to go out with your boss and coworkers and, you know, get, get the good Korean barbecue and, you know, your boss treats you to all that. Um, but the, the pressure that people live under there is incredible. Uh, it's something that, you know, I, as an outsider, as an expatriate, I could never get around just the intense, you know, loads that people put on themselves and the intense demands for the perfection that they want. And, you know, I, I just, um, I, I mean, they, they, there are huge problems with uh, suicide and, and mental illness and, you know, I, you know, this fear of failure. I think that it stems from, a lot of this high pressure work culture. Yeah, tremendous. Uh, that's how I remember it. And you bring it to light in the book. And and you know, remind me how many employees at Samsung globally? More than 300,000. 300,000. And the vast majority of them, would it be fair to say, are working this kind of uh, style, this kind of heavy workloads, hanging out with your boss, probably drinking, feeling tremendous pressure around deadlines or whatever metrics you're being measured against, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Samsung and Hyundai and other cable groups, they tend to operate on similar models. Uh, the workers are under a lot of pressure. Um, you're under a lot of pressure to get, say, the next promotion within two to three years. If you're passed up, it's a regimented promotion system. You're passed up, you don't get promoted. Um, people kind of see you as a failure or they look down on you. Uh, if you are promoted, you're in for another two to three years of hell in terms of the workloads. I, I actually, uh, one time I was in Suwon, which is the Samsung campus, and uh, I talked to, uh, there was a, a young Samsung employee who um, got in a taxi. And uh, I mentioned this because, I mean, she was like, so she, I, I was like, I walked up in front of her and, you know, got, got a taxi, but then I realized she was already waiting behind me. And I felt like I had cut. So I let her get in and I, she could take my taxi. But as she got in, um, I noticed that she was crying. And I asked her, uh, are you okay? And she said, like, you have to understand I was just promoted at Samsung. I, I'm promoted. I'm a director or vice, vice director, something like that. 
as she said, I'm just under so much stress because I know that the next two years, it's going to be the hamster on the wheel. I'm going to be under so much crap, under so much pressure to get to that next promotion. So felt very bad for her, but um, I've, I've seen a lot of stories like that. And there is a whole movement in Korea now. I think that a, a lot of younger Koreans are rebelling against this culture and they're refusing to get jobs at places like Samsung or Hyundai. They feel that they, they're suffocating them and they, they want to go do startups and be entrepreneurial or go out to Silicon Valley and work for, you know, another firm there. Hmm. So do you think the, the millennials in, in South Korea are going to change the culture the way they're changing the culture, um, you know, in North America and in much of Europe? I, I've actually been asked this a lot and I still don't totally know what I think about it because I mean, witnessing things firsthand, um, I know a lot of young Koreans who are tech entrepreneurs and, you know, they're involved in the whole Silicon Valley world. They go between Korea and California constantly. But I know a lot of people who said they, you know, they hate Samsung. They hate the cable groups. They, they never, ever want to get a job. But then once they do get a job at one of these places, suddenly they turn into, you know, total Samsung loyalists. And, you know, they're bossing around their subordinates and, you know, they're kind of, they become very repressive and, you know, they're proud of their company and proud of the country. I, I just, I mean, I, I've always noticed this and I think this exists in a lot of places, but, you know, once people become successful, a lot of them suddenly turn conservative, you know, suddenly they want to defend the system. Yeah. You attack the establishment until one day you wake up and go, holy shit, we're the establishment. And we, now we kind of <laughs> like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And of course you have right, it. Sort of like when, when punk rock gets to be Green Day, and I think Green Day is a great band, but it's sort of not really punk rock anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not, and have we really had punk for a while? I mean, punk has just become, for a while it became like pop. I mean, it was establishment music and you could hear it in right. the Walgreens or the CVS. And you know, look what happened with hip hop as well, right? I mean, the minute you, you're blending hip hop and country music, it's probably not what it was quote unquote, back in the day. <laughs> yeah. 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 Jazz has had the same thing. I mean, a lot of jazz that's played today is pop. You know, it's, it's pop music or it's American songbook. But I mean, to say that it's jazz is really stretching things quite a bit. Yeah. When the pirate becomes the king, then things get different. Right? <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think it's the same in Korea. I mean, it's, I, I've never really met somebody who's, you know, stayed anti-establishment for that long once they realize that, you know, the system is, is putting them in power, they're going to defend the system if it's favoring them. Yes, that makes all the sense in the world. Now, uh, I'm not sure where to start, but I'm amazed at how this, this it's a, starts as a fish company. Yes, a small, am I remembering this right? Yes, And that's, that's maybe right. a few other little things, a market. It was a, it was a little vegetable and fish market. They were importing dried fish from Hong Kong. And just selling basic foodstuffs around the Korean Peninsula, around uh, Manchuria. Um, so, you know, this would be the center of Manchuria would be the center at the time of the Japanese war effort in World War Two. And, um, you know, there was a demand for basic goods for, you know, ba for, for the military to be supplied with just a basic steady stream of food so they could keep fighting. And uh, Lee Byung-chol, who that's the name of the founder of Samsung, he saw that there was a gap in the market and that he could make a small fortune, you know, by supplying this machine with just basic foods. And that's where the whole thing starts. Yeah, that's where it starts. And it's that's that's what's so fascinating about this story of Samsung and why I wanted to write about it, because 
I felt like I was uh, I was going down a rabbit hole writing this thing and researching it because every, every turn is so unexpected. Yeah. How does a grocery store, you know, become a fertilizer company, which is what happened? And then how does that become a semiconductor company? And then how does that become a, a smartphone and TV company? And um, it's a long-winded story. It, did, it took a long time to get to where they are. But I, the long story short is that uh, the, so B.C. Lee, the founder, he bought a beer brewery that you know was enormously profitable because you need a special license in Korea at the time to do that. And there are only like two or three licenses. Um, and then you know World War II ends, the Americans show up and they're going to enforce the surrender of the Japanese emperor on the Korean peninsula because Korea was a Japanese colony and he's able to take advantage of, uh, you know, th these relationships with the U S military. He met, um, uh, you know, local managers, people who, you know, local Koreans who were employed by the military and, you know, use those links to set up his little, a little power base in a place called Daegu, which is where he spent a good deal of his adult life. And, um, from Daegu, he, you know, he buys this local newspaper. He, uh, purchases a university. So it, it's essentially, it's the classic story of the tycoon. Um, and, you know, it, I, I felt like, you know, you could write a similar story about Andrew Carnegie, you know, kind of coming up in the, you know, under, under, uh, underdeveloped Pittsburgh with the, the blackened, you know, steel, the blackened industrial town in the 19th century, like Charles Dickens. And, you know, he comes up and he builds his power base and then suddenly, you know, he, uh, the, the railroad system is set up and then wealth just explodes in America because, you know, oil can be transported quickly. So, I mean, I, I feel that, um, the story of Korea follows a similar story in that respect because BC Lee, he's building this, you know, local power base and Korea is starting to get linked up. It's starting to industrialize and he knows how to take advantage of political connections to get himself to be that guy who gets the government license or who gets the opportunity or, or who gets the way into very strategic industries. And, uh, some of those, some of those tactics, tactics would not be, uh, you tell me legal in the United States today. <laughs> is that, yeah. is that fair? Yeah, they, uh, yeah. they would definitely be illegal and, uh, they would not be kosher in many, uh, developed democracies around the world, you know, Europe, the European union, no way. Um, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. so a little bribery here, a little <laughs> yeah. illegal, uh, manipulation there, a little thuggery. Is that, is that fair? There's a little, it's a little gangstery. It's gangstery. That's the phrase I would use too. It's, um, shady. So the chairman of Samsung, his name is Econ He, he's the son of the founder I was just telling you about. He was convicted of white collar crimes twice, once in 1997 for bribery and then once in 2008 for tax evasion. Um, and both times, the South Korean president announced that he was pardoning the Samsung chairman so the Samsung chairman could be this great symbol of the nation. In, in the case of 2008, uh, the Samsung chairman was on the Olympics committee. And I don't know if you remember, but a couple of years ago, the Winter Olympics were held in Korea. Um, so the Samsung chairman was pardoned so he could go around and promote Korea to get that Olympics hosting spot. And he was successful. Uh, so that's, you know, I, that's, that's about as gangster as it gets, right? That's pretty gangster. That's pretty, you know, just, um, I, I've never seen anything quite like that in many other places. It's just, uh, you know, sometimes people ask me like, well, come on, these conglomerates, these Korean conglomerates, like they're, 
what about the banks in Wall Street and too big to fail? And, you know, what about uh, in Israel, they have similar conglomerates? What about Japan? And, you know, I just have to ask them, well, like, I mean, can you point to a major company that's a major brand around the world? And uh, the top leaders are all convicted criminals, and they're still running the company? You know, is that something? No. Yeah, that's that's simply no. not something that And exists. like, it's gotten to be very cool to shit on Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or pick your favorite billionaire. Um, we had Tom Golsano on recently, founder of Paychex. Um, but but the reality is, do people really think that Bill Gates is a crook? No. Do they think that's what happened? No, he's not a crook and he never, you know, he was never arrested and charged with a crime. You know, he certainly bullied people. I mean, he did, he wanted to have a monopoly back in the 90s, but, you know, he's, um, what he was doing is nowhere on the scale of what has happened in Korea with these cable groups. It's just, it's simply like, imagine, so imagine if Steve Jobs, you know, or Bill Gates or one of these billionaires, Jeff Bezos, yeah, imagine if, um, they, uh, you know, they had gone to jail and they were like running their companies from their jail cells. You know, this is the equivalent of the table. And then, you know, let's say that right. Barack Obama and I could see maybe Trump would do this, but like imagine that two different presidents, Barack Obama and uh, Bill Clinton, you know, pardon Jeff Bezos. And then we called America, you know, the United States of Amazon because Amazon is just so freaking powerful. Yeah, and we just cowered in the presence right. of well, We might be going there, but yeah, <laughs> not yet. We're not there yet. But this is a story of what happens when, you know, a single co- uh, single company comes to define an entire nation. You know, that's that's the story of Samsung and the story of Korea, I feel. And so uh no antitrust laws, no anti no anti-consumer competitive uh, no 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 risk of getting broken up. Pretty much no risk. So Korea does have its own fair trade commission and they're tasked with um, you know, antitrust. Let's like so they find companies who are who are doing um, illegal cross shareholdings or or circular shareholdings that allow them to keep you know control in their ruling families, but they're just not powerful enough. I mean, I think that the um, the reality is that in Korea, these cable groups have such enormous power and such enormous political influence that no government office can really stand up to them and and dismantle them. The government does arrest people. I mean, they, they have arrested quite a few Samsung executives in the past few years for white collar crime and for union busting and for, you know, the destruction of evidence for bribery, for corruption. Um, but, you know, they arrest them and then it's like a few years later, everybody forgets and it's back to normal. And there's, you know, there's a new executive in the same role and then the same thing happens again. So. That, it's a so sl- the, slap the thuggery on the continues. Yeah, it's a slap yeah. on the wrist, total slap on the wrist. Now, if I'm not mistaken, um, Jeffrey, if if I think about them in the context of Apple, I think they might be, maybe you'll tell me, the only two companies who this is true for. Um, both of them made uh, personal computers and at various points in, in the life cycle of the PC did very well, right? I remember uh, one of the earliest uh, clones I ever bought was a Samsung PC clone. And that was a lo- I mean, that was late 80s. Uh, and they had a pretty good position as a clone manufacturer, if I remember correctly. And of course, Apple was more of a pioneer, of course. Um, but to the best of my knowledge, those are the only two companies that made personal computers that uh, are now relevant in uh, smartphone hardware. Yeah, yeah. And Samsung is number one. Is that, am I, am I right about that? Yeah, you're right. So Samsung is the largest smartphone maker in the world and one of the largest hardware makers in the world. But 
I think that you're drawing a good point, you know, talking about Apple and Samsung and how they're both just so big and so important. Um, so Samsung... And have been able to endure across all these different uh, category and platform and technology shifts. I mean, if you think about the difference between a personal computer and today's smartphone, uh, that's a long way away from each other, saying that one company could dominate and have success in, in a com- you know, multiple eras ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, this is actually what the Samsung chairman preached. And he, so he used to hold these long nine hour speeches and he would preach at his executives and tell them to change everything. But, um, he foresaw, so he, he studied different companies over time, you know, historical companies and, you know, like go, and we're, we're talking like going back, you know, even 200, 300 years, he would go back in the whole history and he found, uh, that the average company on the Fortune 500 list uh, in the 1980s when he was studying this had a total lifespan of about 30 to 35 years um, before they were either out of business or just, you know, so, so bankrupted that they were pretty much worthless, even if they were in business. And um, he said, look, uh, you know, Samsung is big today. You know, Samsung, it's, even back then, it was one of the biggest conglomerates in the world. And he said to his executives, we can't become complacent and expect that the success today will last together. You know, what got us here will not get us there. And he's been able to instill this very healthy, forward-looking sense of paranoia that the the collapse is coming. You know, the apocalypse is coming for Samsung. And you better get onto that next thing now and get out that next phone, get out that next TV, get out that next big product category, or else... In 10 years, we might simply go out of business. He was a paranoid leader and he studied the history of the world. He studied also, you know, great empires and nation states and, uh, you know, wars. I mean, he was a big uh, fan of studying the, the history of Japan and Korea. And he realized that, um, you know, empires rise and fall. And, you know, I don't want to go down in history as the emperor who lost my own kingdom because, you know, I thought that I was, you know, hot stuff in my day. It really is a different headset than the sort of uh, traditional uh, Western American CEO entrepreneur type headset that, that that we hear about. It is. So the typical American CEO, American entrepreneur, um, you know, a lot of them are focused on building a business to the stage where it'll get acquired by a bigger one. So IBM comes along and buys up your AI startup, uh, you know, it's ultimately a, a short to medium term strategy. I, I don't think that many American firms look that long into the future. And then, of course, um, you know, the way our business practices are structured is, is that we, we build them around our quarterly earnings reports. And, you know, at a publicly traded company, the earnings are ultimately what's going to determine how the share trades and whether it goes up or down for the most part. Um, so American CEOs, you know, they have an incentive to focus on that next quarter or that next year, next earnings year. How is, you know, how is it going to look for me? And, you know, if, if we go below $4 billion in revenues, am I going to be asked to step down by the board or by the shareholders? Is, is a shareholder going to come in and wage a campaign against me? Um, these Asian giants don't think like that. They think that ultimately the founding family is the supreme leader the, the founding family the founding they're like emperors in that sense yes yes and koreans have a term for it they call it emperor management 
it's something that they're familiar yeah. with. And it's just, I find it so fascinating that all these companies, Samsung, Hyundai, uh, SK, they're all these big Korean companies, they're mostly public. So, so they comprise of different affiliates and they're publicly traded. And, you know, despite being publicly traded, the founding families still control them, even though they have such a, a relatively small number of stakes. I mean, so the Lee family with, that founded Samsung, um, they own like a five or 6% stake in Samsung Electronics. And yet they are the chairman, they're the vice chairman, you know, they're, they, they control the thing. Right. They control yeah. it. Yeah. And I mean, they're not perfect analogies, but of course, uh, Jeff Bezos completely controls Amazon, even though it's a public company, pretty similar at Facebook, I think. And I don't know, I'm not an expert on Walmart, but to, to the best of my knowledge, the Walton family uh, still uh, exudes a ton of power and, and, and so forth and so on. And so there's a handful uh, of we have here of gigantic market cap companies that are public, but they're sort of shareholder activism is not going to take out Jeff Bezos, right? No, so, no, definitely um, not. They have, they have control like a family business in, in spite of the fact that they're public. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So the difference with these Chable groups is that, um, okay, so at these American firms, usually they'll have some kind of special share class reserved for the seat, for the founder, for the CEO, maybe for the family. So Ford is a good example of a company uh, that, you know, has a, has a special a special class reserved just for the Ford family. And, um, you know, in the past, Ford has been accused of, you know, trying to d dilute the shareholding power of outside shareholders and raise, you know, the Ford stake. And similar things have happened at Samsung, though. The difference with the Chable groups is that they operate on what are called cross-shareholdings. So there is no special share class. And if you were to be, say, some financial analyst and you pull out a chart that shows the Samsung empire, uh, you would have no idea who actually owns it or who founded it or who controls it. You know, you simply see a web of companies that own each other. And, you know, if you keep looking deeply, you might find the guy who really controls it. And right now that's the vice chairman, E.J. Yong. His name is Jay Lee. Um, this is because, so, so they set up these cross shareholdings because what happened in Korea after World War II, uh, these holding companies were banned. And the reason holding companies were banned in Japan and Korea is because the U.S. occupation forces did not want to see a, uh, you know, major corporate empire taking over the country again. This is what happened in Japan in World War II. And, you know, they were just these, they were called Zaibatsu. Um, and they were, you know, these are companies like Mitsui, Mitsubishi, uh, Panasonic, you know, the, these were extremely powerful companies in Japan. So I don't want to digress too far, but, um, because of this, holding company banned for a long time, these Korean families had to find a way to keep power within the family and to keep passing it down and down and down. So they set up these cross shareholdings that essentially allow them to own a part of the top company in the chain. And in Samsung's case, that's a theme park. Uh, that, that, so that was the, uh, it, for a long time, it was Everland, which is a theme park. And through Everland, through Everland, they would own a, uh, a sizable, sh a, a sizable share. And then Everland would own a piece of like Samsung life insurance. And then like Samsung life insurance would own a piece of Samsung CNT. And then that would branch out into five other companies. And then, you know, like one of those would, you know, then Samsung electronics comes next. And then Samsung electronics owns, you know, Samsung heavy industries. I mean, I'm not speaking literally, but this is just a sense of how it works. It's just a web it's of a web. Samsung X and Samsung. Yeah. yeah. But the amazing thing is that these families have managed to keep control through this very, I think inherently unstable system 
that does not guarantee that they will, you know, become the next chairman. You know, there, there's really, it's, it's very hard to raise the money that they need to pay this $6 billion inheritance tax. So Korea also has one of the highest inheritance taxes in the world. Um, and to give you an idea, so one family paying $6 billion, that's Samsung. In America, the annual inheritance tax is about $14 billion for the whole country. Um, so 15, 50%. And that's another reason why these families are trying so that's hard. That's incredible. Yeah, it is incredible. And it's, in, it's also incredible that these families, you know, despite not having a special share class, not having any kind of uh, majority ownership stake, you know, not have, not having any kind of, uh, you know, clear structured, you know, kind of top down control of a company. They've managed to stay the leader. It is incredible to, to think that they're number one in smartphones is, is a stunner. Never mind televisions and uh, tons and tons of electronic products. And it, it, you, you tell me, but it seems like, um, to, to my, untrained eye, the emergence of the Internet of Things and the smartification of everything plays to their strengths. They're number one in smartphones. So if we're going to have smart dryers and smart TVs and smart uh, microwaves and fill in the blanks, um, they are positioned like no other uh, to be dominant in the smart home. Uh, am I connecting these dots? Yeah, and uh, that's exactly what Samsung wants. They make everything. They make the refrigerator. They make the washing machine. They make the smartphone. Um, and one of their big goals has been to create an ecosystem around these products. That is the smart home. So, you know, imagine if you walked into a house or maybe a neighborhood and, and every house was pretty much run on just a bunch of Samsung devices that are all connected to each other that can communicate and just figure things out. Um Samsung has in the past been trying really hard to develop software and to develop, you know, an operating system and coding and, you know, software cybersecurity to try to create that ecosystem. So people will just buy a bunch of Samsung products and, and link them together. Uh, it's failed for the most part, failed because of its top down military hardware culture that I, I was talking about earlier. Um, and, you know, that's really a shame because I think that if they could master that software, Samsung would easily beat, you know, Google and Amazon, you know, in these artificial intelligence fields that are getting big now. I mean, Samsung would be the force that would squash everybody, but it's, it's that missing link. Hmm. So, so are you, so if you say, Hey, if you assume that we're going to have a smart home and that, uh, you know, I try to play this cocktail game sometimes, which is name something that's not going to be connected to the Internet. And if you start to think about it, it starts to get hard. You know, when you consider the fact that, that with with ML and AI in agriculture, they're 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 monitoring like milli inches of, of land for m maximum heat and and water and, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. So if we're getting to that level of sort of micro smartification, if I can call it that, um, there is going to be a battle for the smart home. And while there might be a heterogeneous environment, if you look at Apple by way of example, um, you buy into their architecture and you just say, you know, it's way fucking easier to have an Apple TV and an Apple smartphone and an Apple computer and it all works together and it's seamless. And then I have to put it on the iCloud and da, 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 and it all works together. Right. So, so as the smartification of our world continues, um, 
clusters, if you will, of functionalities make sense from one company because the integration and connection, blah, blah, blah. And so as this is starting to, to play out, uh, you know, Jeffrey, do you do you think Samsung's going to win here or not win? Or what's your gut telling you? I think that Samsung's going to win in one area and it's going to be extremely lucrative, but it's the area that people don't pay attention to because it's not sexy in the tech world. They're going to win in semiconductors. Um, and when I say that, I mean non-memory semiconductors. So these are the chips that power, they're going to power artificial intelligence. You know, as we're reaching higher uh, needs for processing, you know, as software is getting so advanced and, you know, we're even now we're reaching levels of eight. So it's called perception AI that can, you know, see and perceive things visually um, in front of it. The, the processing power that's going to be needed to keep this technology going forward is just going to have to be exponential compared to what we have already. Um, so Samsung did, you know, they did announce last year a plan. It's called Semiconductor Vision 2030. And it's a multi-billion dollar investment um, that they hope is going to turn them into the biggest maker of chips for firms like Apple and Amazon and, you know, uh, Google and Facebook and whoever else is really relying on AI. So if you look at the market right now, a lot of, so Amazon, like they have their own designs for an AI chip. Like they, they know what they want already, but there's no company out there that's advanced enough and has the scale and sort of the future long-term abilities to manufacture them. So hold on there, Jeffrey. I want to make sure I didn't really go to school. So I want to make sure I heard what you just said, that Amazon has the specs for what they think they need for chips or next generation of AWS. And of course, their their core commerce business, but they they have the biggest technology infrastructure in the world, yeah, right? Yeah. So they you're saying they have the specs of what they want, but there is not a company that can currently manufacture what Amazon wants to power the next generation of all their infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of the semiconductors, you know, the, so the central, so the engine basically, like, I think that a lot of companies, they have the engine, they, they have the concept of the engine, they have the specs, but um, they, they don't, they don't have the ability to manufacture it right now. And Samsung, because it is a world-class and, you know, very successful chipset maker, that's originally how they got wealthy. You know, they already have that architecture where they can, you know, upgrade to an AI chip, and then they can take an order. So where's Intel in this discussion? Intel's a dinosaur. Um, Intel's gone. And I think that war was settled a long time ago. Intel's gone, yeah, Jeffrey. Yeah, I think Intel is, is... Holy shit, dude. Yeah. You think that's... Intel's gone? I think Intel's gone. I mean, I think that Intel has seen its day. Um, I think that the days of um, the three founders... Um, and you know what? I was just reading a book about Intel, so I feel like I should have this knowledge off the top of my head. Uh, more, and I'm blanking on the other two. And then, of course, uh, uh, Andy, Andy Grove, Grove yeah, right? Yeah. So more. Uh, I don't know if he's technically a founder or not, but died died a few years ago. So Moore's law: the idea that um, you know computing power would have to double every certain number of years. I think that Intel has gotten quite far away from its original DNA and from its original goals. I think that Intel has really become something of a dinosaur. And I think we've already seen, so it, you know, Samsung is a company that, um, you know, clearly came out of nowhere in the 2000s with their, uh, so they're called NAND flash memories. 
And with that, you know, with a lot of these new advances that were happening, they were able to just destroy Intel at its own game. They, they even had a law that they invented called Huang's Law, and it was named after the head of the semiconductor division. And basically what they did is they took Moore's Law about the innovation of semiconductors, the pacing that was needed, and they doubled it. And they said, we're going to go double the pace of Intel and we're going to make, you know, we're going to make like, you know, it, it's, it was, I forgot the exact number, but it was like every year, that, you know, or every six months, we're going to like try to double computing power. And for about eight years, they succeeded. They innovated at a pace that was seen, that was never seen in that industry. And Intel, you know, I think that that was their last gasp. And, you know, I mean, maybe Intel does have some kind of future in some other field, but right now it's Samsung. It's also NVIDIA. The, uh, yeah, they yes. used to make the graphics processors. Uh, but the technology, so yep. the technology for making a graphics processor is, kind of similar to making an AI chip. So they were able to easily flip over into that new sector and and make those advances in AI. But, you know, I think that, yeah, in terms of hardware, it's going to be the battle for who can make the best AI chip in the next, you know, 10 years or so. And what do you think it means for the United States and particularly, of course, Silicon Valley, that um, the number one chip maker in the world and, and, and a company that stands to own a meaningful part of the smart home and, and, and probably a meaningful part of uh, IoT overall. Um, what do you think that means for the United States that a non-American company is going to be s- so dominant in the IT space? Well, we're living in this era of trade wars and this era of global connections starting to fall apart. So um, there could be a situation in the future where you know America is making a ton of software. We've got the coding down. We've got the ecosystems down. We can make the you know we can design hardware. We can design an iPhone. But where are we going to manufacture that? And, you know, if a company like Samsung, which is massive and, you know, is one of the only reliable players in town says, I don't want to make that for you, then oops, farewell. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, even at Apple, uh, Tim Cook, the, the current CEO, he was opposed to suing Samsung and all those lawsuits for the patent infringement about a decade ago. I don't know if you remember the Apple versus Samsung lawsuits. He was opposed. It felt like it went on in every country for <laughs> yeah, years. Yeah, it did. It did. It did. But he was opposed because he was worried about endangering a relationship with such a major chip maker that Apple relies on for its iPhones and for the iPad and the iPod before that. I mean, it is a fascinating to think that a fascinating thing to think that they are fighting tooth and nail in the smartphone category when. Samsung is a massive part of Apple's supply chain. Yeah, yeah. These are two companies that compete just nastily with with each other. It's just a never-ending war to put out that next big thing. And yet, the the fascinating thing is that they're so tied at the hip, you know, that uh, you really can't separate them. That you know, Apple and Samsung, you know, you take one out of the equation, and the other one just kind of whimpers off and falls apart and doesn't have what they need. I mean, it is one of the most fascinating corporate relationships of all time. It is. is it, not? it is. It's a kiss and fight relationship. It's like you know, you know, today we're going to give each other a hug, and tomorrow I'm going to punch you in the face, type thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, and I, I, when I was doing interviews for my book, I just ran into so many stories, uh, and I didn't get to publish all of them, but just stories about you know the Apple Samsung relationship and how. At one moment, um, you know, executives would be friendly and admiring Steve Jobs. They'd be meeting together. They'd be kind of hanging out, talking, you know, talking business a little bit. And then, the, you know, the next minute, uh, the Samsung executives would be just swearing at Steve Jobs 
um, you know, privately, not, not to his face, but just like swearing and like ta- saying that he's a real, he's a shithead and he's all this stuff. He's terrible. He's evil. Um, because of these lawsuits, you know, they felt that he was looking down on them and they felt that he was trying to bully them into a monopoly. That was their side of the story. Well, and he probably was. <laughs> they were probably exactly right. I don't yeah. know. It doesn't sound unusual. It doesn't sound out of character. No, anyway. no, it doesn't. No, no. And actually, there was a patent uh, that I I, lo- I was looking at. I found it, and it was a it was literally a patent that Apple had filed, and it was a square rectangle with rounded edges. And the diagram, the picture that they drew with it, it looks like an iPod. Uh, sorry, an iPad. Um, so this was filed, it was like 2014, you know, during this litigation. And I was sitting there looking at this patent and I was thinking, what the heck did Steve Jobs, or not Steve Jobs because he was dead, but like did Tim Cook or Johnny Ive or one of these guys literally just sign off on a, a square as their patent? You know, I mean, that, so that's, mm. that would be an example right there of building a monopoly. Now, a court actually threw out that patent because it was so silly. They, they just looked at it and they're like, you know, you're not going to patent a, a shape. So give me a break. Come on, guys. Yeah, yeah. I love all that. And I'm so stoked that you wrote the book. And because I think it's, uh, uh, at least for many of us um, in North America and the United States and Silicon Valley, you know, we're, we're cer- certainly much more ignorant about what's going on in Korea and particularly what's going on with Samsung uh, than we are what's going on at, uh, you know, pick whatever big Amazon or Apple or whoever you want to talk about here. So I think you're shining a light for those of us on this side of the pond anyway, that's an important light to shine. Um, is there anything else you want to touch on about Samsung before we move to a couple other things? Um, I don't think we need to touch on a whole lot else. I think we covered a lot of ground. I mean, I, if it would interest your listeners, I could talk about the, uh, you know, the the corruption scandal recently that led to the impeachment and arrest of the South Korean president and the Samsung leader bought a horse for her cronies and he went to jail for a year. Well, we'd probably be stupid not to not to deal with that. <laughs> so, and this is a great example of sort of the intertwining of Samsung into the into the um into the government, not not just the daily life. Yeah, yeah. And that was a strange story. So I was in Seoul when this was all happening, but it began in 2017, 2016, 17, around there, when uh, there was this tablet that was leaked, and it showed that the Korean president had this strange crony who was the daughter of this charismatic spiritual leader, like a kind of cult, I guess, um, and this this strange woman was influencing the president from behind the scenes and checking her itinerary and all this kind of thing. And then, so prosecutors, she wasn't a government employee. She had no security clearance to be handling the president's affairs this way. So the um, prosecutors looked into it and Korean people were really upset. And there were, you know, massive protests in the streets that this could happen. It looks like a corruption scheme. Prosecutors... Uh, uncovered evidence that Samsung had bought a horse worth about $800,000 and had paid millions, about almost $40 million in bribes to the president and this crony, the secret woman. And they did this uh, allegedly in exchange for a the political support of a merger that was going through that was ripping off all these New York uh, hedge fund managers uh, and it was a merger that was giving Jay Lee, the Samsung Air, more shareholding value and more control, and consolidating his control over this massive Samsung empire 
so he could raise to the level of the chairman eventually and take over because his dad has had had a heart attack um, about a uh, about a couple of years before this happened. His dad was in bad health and was in a hospital suite. Um, and you know, I, I'm just sitting there like it was one of the weirdest things I've ever covered. So, it, what the what does the horse have to do? With it? So they bought a horse for the this this crony's daughter because the daughter was a horseback rider and she wanted to be in the Olympics and the Asian Games. So Samsung bought her a horse and she would train in Germany with a fancy coach. Um, and then they 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 gave all this money to this really shady entity that was just founded called Core Sports. And it was like a company that it was founded one day in Germany. And then the next day, the Samsung executives showed up at this hotel and they, you know, they had their contract and they said, we want to give millions of dollars to Core Sports for a sponsorship. Um, and so anyway, so the, the story gets weirder and weirder because as this merger was going through, um, there was a hedge fund in New York called Elliott. And the New Yorker called it the world's most feared investor. They're notorious for, you know, they've gone after governments. And like one time they seized a, an Argentinian naval ship somewhere. It was like docking in Africa and they, they were able to get, you know, get the government there to seize it as collateral so they could get their debts repaid from the Argentinian government. I mean, this is like, this is a serious, you know, you don't want to mess with these guys if you're in debt to them. So they opposed, they owned a stake in, in Samsung and they opposed this merger because they felt they were being blatantly ripped off. And when they went in and, and launched the shareholder war, what happened is that the, these Korean business magazines launched an anti-Semitic media campaign against the head of this hedge fund. His name is Paul Singer. So they said, like, they published these ridiculous articles. They said that, you know, they literally, like, quote, Jewish money is ruthless and merciless, unquote. You know, they said that uh, Paul Singer is the head of a of a Jewish hedge fund and that the Jewish people have enormous sway over the U.S. government, that it's a conspiracy. It's an international Jewish conspiracy against Korea. And it just went, it was just so ridiculous. And then Samsung. But the newspaper published that it was an international Jewish conspiracy against yes, Korea. Yes, an international Jewish conspiracy. Yes. And then Samsung, in this really boneheaded move, Every Jew I've ever met has uh, conspiratorial thoughts that they've expressed <laughs> to me. <laughs> They're just sitting there, you know, plotting in there. You know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> Mr. Burns plotting. I have a lot of Jewish people in my life. <laughs> I've never heard this come up, not at any meeting I was at. Yeah, yeah. So, but um, Samsung, in this really boneheaded move, uh, published a website in Korean. And it was to argue their side of the merger for the shareholders. And so they created this character called Vulture Man, and it, it was presumably Paul Singer. And they showed him as this vulture, and he's like this guy, he has this giant beak, and he's like traveling around the world, and he's like holding bags of, you know, gold coins, and like smiling and running away with, you know, people's money. And then they show him like preying on this this poor, starving African child in the Congo who's all gaunt and skinny and has a bloated belly. And they're, you know, they're like, this is who we're up against. This is, you know, this is what it is. This is our enemy. And of course, you know, this, so this got into the New York Observer. I mean, people translated this and they're like, okay, seriously, like there's an anti-Jewish campaign in the Korean business media right now. And Samsung, like basically they, so they did a side by side and they, they showed, uh, Der Sturmer, which was the Nazi magazine from 1938. And they did like a side by side with the Samsung caricature of Paul Singer. 
And it looks like it just looks so similar. And it was just like, oh my God, you know, like this is some weird uh, fascist. So they're literally using Nazi propaganda yes, techniques. Yes, they're using the techniques. It, it looked very similar to Nazi propaganda. Uh, I don't think that they realized that when they published it, but it was really uh, just, uh, I mean, that. Just an unfortunate coincidence. Like, I mean, they never outright. So Samsung never outright said, like, you know, we don't like Jews or anything like that. But the caricature definitely looks like some kind of anti-semitic cartoon you know like it would be in some nazi tabloid somewhere unbelievable and so how does the story end so the merger went through because of these uh major bribes that samsung paid um and then uh prosecutors came in and they ended up arresting the samsung air jay lee and a handful of other executives so that all the pretty much the top people at samsung um, were arrested and put on trial the south korean president was impeached and went to prison um, she's serving, I think it's a 30 year sentence now. It's, it's changed a little bit, but it's, I think it's 30. And, um, and then, uh, Jay Lee, the Samsung, the de facto leader of Samsung was put on trial. He was sentenced to five years in prison. Um, he served one year of that five year sentence for bribery and perjury. And then at an appeals hearing, the court upheld part of his bribery charge, but they reduced the amount that he gave. And they said that because of that, well, you're free to go. You don't have to serve your sentence. So we're going to commute your sentence and you're out of prison and you're back at Samsung. And that's that. And welcome to Korea, which is the Republic of Samsung. So he's actually awaiting there. There have been more. So wait a minute. I just want to make sure I understand this. The prime minister gets 30 years. The president, 30 years in prison. The president, excuse me, 30 years. And the head of Samsung gets... gets Gets zero yeah, one one year, but then you know yeah one year, one but year. then let out early. But then that and gets out gets out early on a uh, reswizzle yeah. of the deal and goes back, goes to, back business. to business. Now um, he has been on trial since then, so he had a Supreme Court trial, and they avoided that ruling and they sent the they they sent the trial back down to the appeals court, and now they're doing a retrial of that. So he actually could go back to jail if they find him guilty of giving more bribes now so now they're saying their big thing is that actually three horses not one horse might be a bribe so that's pretty bad (laughs) (laughs) hey first two horses don't count yeah yeah. i don't know you you tell me but um uh, the best of my knowledge it's still the same way you've written for many of the top newspapers um in the world and certainly in the country and um I can remember many a time going to lunch or dinner or drinks with a Wall Street Journal reporter or a New York Times reporter and offering to pay. And you can't buy a New York Times reporter lunch. No, you can't. You can't fucking buy him yeah. lunch. Right. Am I? This is how this works. In yeah, this that's country, how it yes? works. That's how it works. But maybe in Korea, you two horses are good. <laughs> but the third one is yeah, too yeah. much. So actually in Korea. They passed a law a couple of years ago because corruption was such a concern um, and they limited the amount that you could buy, like legally, the amount that you can buy like for a fellow uh, business executive or for a government official is 30. It's about $30 or less. Like if you go out to dinner together, you can't spend more than about $30 on that person's whining and dining for the evening. Um, and the thing is that so, you know, there's still a lot, there's still a good deal of corruption in Korea in the business circles. And a lot of people think that this law, it's, it's way too draconian. And it's probably like a reverse situation where, you know, where prosecutors and politicians, they're using it to go after people who they don't like. It's like, okay, well, 
we want to get you on something. So let's go. We're going to subpoena you know, all of your receipts from the past month. And oh, it looks like you spent $35 on a dinner for Mr. Kim, who works for Hyundai. Well, I guess, you know, you're corrupt and you're, we're going to find you and put you on trial now. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a funny environment in that way. It's like there, there is a good deal of these corrupt schemes happening, but then the laws are actually quite hard on corruption. Yep. I mean, you, you really can't get away with a lot legal and it's, it's a funny environment. So it's a dichotomy. It, the rules are different depending on who yeah, you are. I think the rules are different depending on who you are. And, you know, I do think that the, the rich and wealthy in Korea, like in many places of the world, get treated better, you know, than the average Joe down the street. Yeah. Now, switching topics a little bit, you know, we're, we're living at an extraordinary time. And, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about the relationship between uh, the United States and China um, and Asia overall, to some degree. And we have a worldwide pandemic that started in China. And so I'm just curious, sort of as as we're all watching this play out, um, you have a very particular lens on the world, given your experience. So how does all this look to you? Yeah, so. I'm coming at it from Asia, from my time in Asia, and it is a different lens. It is a peculiar, you know, being over there, it does really force you to shift your, I guess, your paradigm, you know, the way that you filter the world around you. So um, the story of the world, you know, since the industrial era has been one of this, uh, you know, the rise of factories and industry and manufacturing and mass manufacturing. I mean, you know, just think about our smartphones and, you know, the iPhones that we have and, you know, how much, how much historical development going back hundreds and hundreds of years it required to get to that level where we can make something this sophisticated with so much processing power and uh, user experience and a display, you know, that works flawlessly. And, you know, the, the, even the glass, you know, the shape of the glass is quite hard to make for an iPhone, you know, the curved edges. And I, I mean, you know, just like, it's, you know, it, it really started um, in the 19th century, just to look at this historically. And in this time, one of the big stories of our generation and recent generations has been the rise of Asia as this manufacturing power, this manufacturing region. You know, as the West moved, you know, we got wealthier and we moved into finance and we moved into software coding and, you know, remote kind of services and, and all that. And Asia took, uh, took the mantle, starting with Japan. Um, and they said, you know, we're not going to do finance. We're not going to do law. We are going to create um, an actual product, a Sony Walkman, which was the iPhone of its day. And we're going to take over the world with our really. It was fucking awesome. I had one when it came out. You wanted one of those things badly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, I remember when they came out and they had a radio in them, too. So, uh I <laughs> I listened to the worldwide launch of Van Halen 1984 and the first play of Jump ever on my Sony <laughs> Walkman radio. Nice, nice. <laughs> so back in the day, that was, uh, yeah, that was that was popular, right? I mean, that was the thing to have. It was the iPhone of its day. But the idea, you know, the Japanese said, like, look, the Americans are making all these big bulky TVs that are humongous, and it's like a piece of furniture that you have to haul around you know, giant stereos. I mean, the world of the past, I, I don't think that a lot of people remember this, but it was all about size, like bigness. Like I want the big stereo in my living room. I want the, you know, a big bulky, bigger, bulky, boxier TV. You know, the it's, it's ugly. It doesn't look that nice, 
Um, but that, that was the dominant form factor of the time. And, uh, the Japanese led by Sony said, that's kind of stupid. I mean, the world, like people are starting to move around more. We're becoming a more travel based society. We have, you know, air travel. We have, um, you know, I mean, people move around a lot more. They, they move to new homes. Wouldn't the future be mobile? And shouldn't we basically take what that stereo has or what that TV has? and try to miniaturize it into something that you can just put in your pocket. Now, remember, I mean, this is the late 1970s when these concepts started getting big. And, you know, everybody, we tend to think like, oh, Steve Jobs invented the miniaturization. Apple did this. But actually, it was Sony. And Steve Jobs, he visited Sony's factory in the early 80s. And he said that he wanted to be Sony. Um, you know, he, he told his fellow CEO, uh, Scully, John Scully, he wanted to be Sony, and he even went back to his employees and said that, you know, he wanted Apple employees to wear the same uniforms that Sony wore, which, um, uh, of course, they objected to that. They were like, I'm not wearing a freaking company uniform at Apple. That would be a bit too cult-like, right? So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, it was just like, um, <laughs> okay, so anyway, I, I'm just digressing a little bit, but it's okay. I digress all the time. <laughs> this is digression <laughs> no, no, central. Though. Yeah. Well, it's fun though. It's fun to, you know, pull up all this stuff. It's, it's, it's good for thinking. But, um, so anyway, so back to my point. So the, uh, you know, the rise of Asia as this hardware manufacturer that's going to supply the parts to Americans and, and Westerners mostly. Um, that's one of the big stories of our times. And first it was Japan with that, with the Trinitron TV, with the Walkman. Um, it was Korea with, you know, the Hyundai cars and with the Samsung TVs and the Samsung Galaxy phones. Um, and now it's China with the Huawei, the 5G infrastructure. And it's China, you know, with the Xiaomi phones and China, you know, with the Tencent and the uh, Baidu and the Alibaba artificial intelligence and the Jack Ma's, the you know, the new generation of entrepreneurs. Like, we, we have seen the rise of China. So how how afraid should the United States be of Huawei and of the what's, what looks like meaningful AI progress that uh, that China is, is making? So um, I think that we should be wary, actually. I, I do think that, uh, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time in China. I've been to some pretty perilous places in China. I've also been to Xinjiang, which is in the West, where they're unrolling the world's most sophisticated surveillance state based on new technologies like AI and facial recognition. Um, it, it truly is terrifying there. And I can get to some stories about that in a second. Um, but we should be worried because, um, you know, with a 5G system linked up to China, China has a national security law that requires companies to cooperate with the security services basically always they can't turn down a request to cooperate so they're basically an arm of the communist party right now um and you know if you're running a 5g system and let's say you set it up in poland that theoretically means that you know in some future world a chinese uh, official can say like hack the polish system tell us what's going on there on their data networks or hack that guy's car and in a worst case scenario let's drive it off the road and kill him because we don't like them so this is the thing that scares the shit out of all of us, right? Because you could say whatever you want about American entrepreneurs and dominant companies and this and that and the other. But if you take Cisco as a, as a comparison to Huawei, you say, okay, uh, who would we rather have be the backbone of the internet? Well, I, I think we'd rather it be an American company. Yeah. 
I think that uh, most people in America would agree with that. And that is, I don't think that that is, you know, nationalism. I don't think that that's patriotism. I think that that's a very pragmatic, sound decision. And the reason is because, um, you know, there's no national security law in the U.S. on the level of what they have in China. So, you know, if Oracle gets a government, an FBI or, you know, sub a court order or something, uh, you know, they they don't have to abide by it. You know, they, they can oppose it and they can try to strike it down. Now, we do have in America the FISA courts, the uh, foreign intelligence. Um, and, you know, that that is very controversial because it is a court that convenes basically in secret and makes its own decisions without much appeal oversight. But even that, I mean, you know, what, this Guantanamo Bay and, you know, war on terror, uh, civil rights abuses, you know, what happens in America is just simply not like it's bad, but it's not on the level of, you know, what the Chinese government can do because there's so much power vested in the communist party over there, which is pretty much total power. I mean, in, in China right now, um, in Western China, the Uyghur people, there are, um, there are an estimated million or maybe slightly more than a million people who are in concentration camps getting brainwashed right now and having to do forced labor. And, you know, this is a lot of this is done through a surveillance system called Skynet, as in the Terminator system. And Skynet is so this is the Chinese government surveillance system that um, it, it works through a series of you know millions of cameras that are linked up to AI and that are linked up to, uh, you know, facial recognition technologies and all this. And the uh, the worrisome part is that, you know, this AI system will look at a, say, a person of Uyghur ethnicity in Western China and look at their behavior and it, it will predict it's called predictive policing it can predict whether uh you know they're going to commit a, commit a crime or an act of terrorism based on say like did they go to a mosque they're a muslim and they went to a mosque too much and they're praying and we're seeing them so it'll it'll uh you know it'll create a dossier on them and then based on that the police will arrest them for pre-crime like that old sci-fi movie minority report so <laughs> Well, I yeah. love that it's an old one for you. <laughs> but so this is every, you know, this is Orwell. This is Minority Report. This is every version of this hyper controlled technology enabled dictatorship future. Plus, plus, like, I don't know. You tell me you've been there. I mean, I've spent time in China, but I haven't dug into this shit. I've been to Beijing and Shanghai for business and got out of Dodge. But if George Orwell saw this, he'd shit his pants, wouldn't he? Yeah. So I met a Uyghur woman, actually, uh, a Uyghur woman who lives in Turkey. So the Uyghurs are the ethnic group in Western China, and they're mostly Muslim. So she was a refugee who spent time in a concentration camp. And she's also, uh, she was doing a PhD for a while. It's very intelligent. She was training to become a diplomat until suddenly the system in China turned against her for reasons that are still unclear. Um, and when I met her, when I was in Turkey, I, we sat down, we were having tea, and she pulled out a book and put it on the table. And that book was 1984 by George Orwell. And she asked me, she was like, Art, did you read this book? And I was like, yeah, of course I did. I mean, it's a classic. And we, a lot of us have to read it in high school. And she said, when I was in China, I had no idea about this book, but I'm still trying to figure out how this old Englishman from, you know, 70 years ago can write a book that is about my life. I have no idea how he did that, but it is about me. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Jeffrey, that's crazy that, that, that you had that experience and that uh, imagine what it would be like to be her. Holy fuck. Yeah. Talk about having your mind fucked. Yeah. That's incredible. 
Now, so how does how does all of your experience in Asia, again, because you have a lens certainly that I don't and many of us don't. So how do you view what's happening right now with the coronavirus? Um, yeah, so back to the coronavirus. So I, I think that my overarching idea right now is that um, this is one of the cracks at the egg. I don't think it's going to upend everything, but um, you know, I think that in the past, you know, past five years or so, you know, there have been a lot of cracks at our society and a lot of cracks at these global systems and how they work. You know, there, there's been a lot of deglobalization and trade wars and the European Union is, you know, is disintegrating. There's Brexit, there's uh, populism, there's Donald Trump, you know, the rise of dictators around the world. Um, and, you know, I think the coronavirus is one more crack that's going to, you know, after after enough of these cracks, the the whole thing is going to fall apart, you know, and we're going to wake up. I think we're going to wake up one day and the world will be significantly different the way things are run and the way we live our lives. Um, so I think that in ter- if you want to get specifically into technology, um, coronavirus is uh, breaking apart, uh, you know, some of these global links that we've set up in the past few decades. Um, and I think that this is the end of the Asian manufacturing miracles. This is going to be the shift away from them. So China, you know, they have their own software and tech ecosystem now. I mean, they have a billion people who are tapping away on WeChat on their own software and services. And and that's one of the reasons why China is so advanced in AI is that, you know, they have a, a billion people. Privacy is not really a thing over there. So they're just gathering mass data on everybody using these phones and you know they, that's that's really that's like the so they call data it's like the oil for ai and you know that's how they're able to progress so far the the ai systems can find uh correlations between you know millions billions of of data points that humans you know can't see and i say that you know this is the end of the manufacturing miracle because i don't think china and these asian powers are going to be exporting to the u.s significantly for much longer you know i think that they they've realized that they have their own ecosystem they're going to go inwards i think they're starting to focus more on themselves they're going to make smartphones for themselves you know they're going to make 5g for themselves they're going to they're going to have everything they need at their fingertips and uh, america is going to have to find a way to get that manufacturing back in the future so basically we're breaking off into two ecosystems in the world and this is going to be really definitive for the next you know i think the next few decades either you know, if you're a political leader, you're going to have a choice either to join the Chinese tech ecosystem with their 5G, with their uh, AI software, with their you know self-driving cars, or you're going to have a choice to to join the American and the, the English-speaking world's um, AI ecosystem and you know its its tech ecosystem. Um, so it's essentially like you know, it's 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 sort of like I mean, some people say it's a cold war. I don't think it's the same as the Cold War because, you know, China is so entangled in global networks and, you know, they're, they're, you know, it, like the Soviet Union did not, uh, you know, they, they didn't send like businessmen over to America to sign deals to sell, you know, smartphones to Americans. It's a totally different dynamic. Um, but my concern now, you know, with coronavirus coming is that, you know, like where is America going to get its stuff? And I think we've gotten very comfortable and complacent with the idea that, you know, we can just go out and get a smartphone for cheap or we can, you know, just get order. We can call that Uber and not pay a lot of money. I mean, I think that prices are going to start to go up as these links are broken down, trade links. And um, finally, just to 
finish my points. Um, I think that the, uh, um, there, there's a big worry that, uh, like, I'm just trying to, I have a lot of thoughts in my mind, but just, so there, I, I think that there is a worry that, um, maybe AI will upend everything. And I think what's going to happen is that AI will bring manufacturing back to the states because it's going to make a lot more sense to have, you know, an AI run factory right next to your, you know, as logistically next to where the customers are. So you'll order something on Amazon. Because AI will change the economics around manufacturing in the United States and proximity on its face makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. But then there's going to be a whole class of people who, you know, in Asia and in America with the gutting of manufacturing are really going to have nothing that they can do to make a living. I mean, it's going to be pretty terrible. And you know, I, there's already been talk of a universal basic income in the U.S. I don't know if that's going to solve the problem. Um, I'm still kind of wondering if there's a better, like a more sophisticated solution that would involve income, but maybe something else too. Um, but, you know, the natural... The natural result of that kind of environment is a backlash. I mean, there's going to be more di more dictators, more populism, more public anger, more protests. Uh, it could be in China too. It could be in America. It could be in developing countries like Vietnam or Turkey that are authoritarian and depend a lot on manufacturing. So we might actually see a wave, you know, similar to the Great Depression era of the past, a wave of you know pumped up nationalism and fascistic thinking you think because of ai or because of the coronavirus or both i think uh, it's going to be more ai i mean i think the, i think that there will be future epidemics this is not the end but i think that this coronavirus is a taste of what's to come but uh, ai i think will be more significant because i think that it's going to impact literally everything i mean it's going to upend the system that we built and i i don't know what the new world will look like after that but it's just it does have huge implications for humanity no question the thing I find interesting is every time I listen to people get all freaked out about, you know, the truck drivers or whatever they're getting freaked out about, I'm reminded that the history of humankind suggests that strongly that the Luddites are always wrong. You know, if you go all the way back and you say, okay, well, let's say, let's say for sake of argument, the wheel is the greatest innovation of all time. You say, okay, well, so if, if at the cre creation of the wheel, particularly for transportation, you said, hey, well, hey, if, if we do, if we use the wheel for transportation, then all the people who haul shit around aren't going to have anything to do anymore. <laughs> it's going to cause massive dislocation in the economy because all the, the people who, all the haulers are fucked. So what do we do, right? And so it's sort of, I, I get that it's scary and it spooks the shit out of me as well. Uh, and certainly we don't want civil dis unrest and, and we want a, an economy that works for everyone. And I think we want those things. But at the same time, it appears in hindsight, when you look back at history, that uh, the Luddites are virtually wrong every time. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. And I do. I'm not saying that we should, you know, block AI or stop doing AI research. I actually, I do think that we need to move forward and AI is going to be one of the big waves of the coming decades. Um, but uh, I think we need to have a plan in place to, you know, to the, the people at the bottom to ensure that, you know, they have some kind of net that's going to hold them up if there are disruptions. I mean, look at the past decade. And I think that life today in 2020 with our technology is far more convenient for the average, you know, middle-class person 
um, than it was 20 years ago in the year 2000. I mean, I think that we made huge strides, but you know, then to be fair, you know, we have to look at also this rise of the gig economy and the, uh, you know, the emergence of this, you know, this growing wealth gap, you know, especially since the 2001 and 2008 economic crises. And, you know, this idea that companies don't, don't have to hire somebody, you know, and give them, uh, their normal, um, you know, healthcare benefits. They can just hire a gig worker who's working on a laptop or a smartphone somewhere over in, in India or, you know, or Nigeria, you know, maybe an expat, a young expat who doesn't really care, who, you know, doesn't need a ton of money. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, we have made progress in a lot of areas, but we've also stepped back in a few areas. And I think that that trend is going to continue with some of these disruptions that are happening, especially with AI. So I don't know what the solution is yet. So I was reading a really interesting book by Kaifu Li, who is a Taiwanese, uh, Taiwanese born and Chinese, uh, AI investor and AI expert used to work for Apple, worked for Microsoft for a while. One of the big brains, uh, behind AI and its current and especially over in China. And he made an interesting argument that, um, instead of a universal basic income, he thinks that the economy is going to shift towards non-logical like kind of non-rational fields that are bigger on uh you know human interaction emotional intelligence creativity kind of the the softer side of things is going to get bigger so people who are like say public relations or psychologists or you know ceos leaders uh you know like uh podcast hosts i would hope you know people who have to like you know people who have to kind of like be I don't know. At one point, there was a guy named Max Headroom who looked like he was going <laughs> to be a, a computer-generated host of something that was getting popular for yeah. a while. <laughs> yeah, but so I mean, just these these fields that require people to be kind of creative and use their interpersonal skills, I think, will be good. And so Kaifu Lee made an interesting argument about what we need to do. He said that maybe we need to set up a fund that uh, it's a government fund that pays people salaries who are in these kinds of fields that are going to be needed. So, you know, if you're, um, if you're an entrepreneur and you're displaced by, by AI, uh, you can, you know, let's say you set up an oral history company and you go around and interview the elderly who, you know, they're sick and dying and they want to get their story down before they're gone. Uh, he thinks that there should be a government fund that subsidizes that kind of work. So more people have the resources and they have the time to, you know, do things that would be bigger in the, the post AI era. That's just one suggestion that I don't, it could work. I don't know. Well, I, I'm a staunch uh, supporter of uh, personal dominion and agency and freedom. And so I think things that um, provide support and incentive for people having agency over their own life, teaching them to fish versus fishing for them. That's that's my concern. And I think the other one that I think is a valid one, I'm not, so I'm no fan of UBI. As a matter of fact, I, I, I think it's completely anti-American. And uh, on the healthcare issue, it's insane to me that healthcare is tied to your employment. I don't even know that why that was a design point in the beginning, because I think part of the entrepreneurial problem we have, and entrepreneurship is, is, is down in the United States, is the fact that our healthcare is tied to our employment. And so if you want to be entrepreneurial, there's a ton of risk that comes with it anyway. And then you throw the, well, if, if I get sick or my family gets sick, we're royally fucked. So I'm going to keep my job at wherever. Um, and so I, I guess my point is 
I think there's a lot to do um, to provide more of a real social safety net, particularly around healthcare. And, um, and I would prefer to see things that provide incentives for doing uh, powerful, self-generated uh, things that create value in the world as opposed to handouts. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I agree that, uh, you know, it, it is risky to do business in America with the healthcare system. It, it's also a problem that, you know, American businesses, you know, have, it's almost like they're expected to absorb the costs of these, you know, major healthcare bills. So somebody I know, uh, got this, this happened a couple of years ago, got some, got suddenly sick, uh, while on a business trip and passed out. And the healthcare bill that, that had to be reimbursed by her business, it was like a $20,000 bill just to go on a, an ambulance ride to the hospital. And then, you know, basically to tell her to drink water, you know, just get some more water, dehydrated. And, uh, that, that was like it. And it was just a ridiculously big bill. The company paid it, um, you know, and, and she was insured, but it was still massive for some reason. And I was just totally taken aback. So if you're running, you know, any kind of, entrepreneur who's not a big businessman, any small and medium enterprise, if you're on the hook to pay that, that is a major business risk. I mean, that is something that if things go south, could totally cripple, you know, any reasonable business. And yeah, I think I, I think that we do need to rethink the way that we do healthcare in America. I mean, I, I, I think about this a lot and I still don't know what the optimal system is. You know, some people talk about single payer. Some people talk about, you know, like people should pay their own healthcare through insurance. Um, I mean, I think one of the problems is that insurance companies got into this position where uh, they have um, too much power over both the healthcare providers and the patients themselves. So, you know, I, I was looking at this chart and it showed 1980 versus like 2015 or 2020 in terms of the healthcare administration workforce. And just dealing with some of these insurance companies uh, has caused for just a, a massive spike in the number of administrative personnel whose job is just like, you know, like doing the paperwork and making sure that, you know, the, the legal terms are correct, making sure that the, 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 uh, the, the correct amount is being paid for the right reasons, no pre-existing conditions. And, uh, you know, having a major, I mean, that, I, I, I don't think that the administrators should be in a position where they have power over the doctors or power over the patients. You know, that that's ultimately about the doctor who's the the expert and the doctor should be able to make their own decision about what a patient needs without having an administrator tell them what's allowed and what's not. I I remember when the whole when Obamacare was on the on the horizon and and the against it crowd was saying, um, well I don't want anything to come in between me and my doctor. <laughs> and I just laughed my ass off. It's like really? The fucking company tells you whether or not you can have the test. The doctor could say, well, I want you to have, I had this happen to me recently. My left knee is fucked. So I call my doctor, who's been my doctor for 25 years, Dr. Kathy, and I say, my left knee's fucked. I want an MRI. And she says, well, you know, you can't go just get an MRI. You got to go see the guy and then you got to get an x-ray and then an MRI. And then I said, look, I know I need an MRI. I'm 52 years old. I've, I know when my shit's fucked and I know you need an MRI, not just an x-ray. Maybe I need an x-ray too, but I definitely need an MRI. Anyway, long story short, the only way to circumnavigate all the stupidity was to pay for it yourself. Yeah. So I paid 500 bucks and I got an MRI and it showed that I have a fucked meniscus. And so then when I went to meet with the expert 
uh, doc, we had that and, you know, we could have a conversation about the way forward. And so I cut that step out and, and frankly took cost out of the healthcare system and time out of the healthcare system. But you know, who, who, how many of us are going to pay 500 bucks for a fucking MRI? Yeah. Yeah. Good job getting through all that bureaucracy. I mean, I I've had, uh, I haven't had any major health issues recently, but you know, sometimes just getting a visit for a physical to the local doctor. I mean, occasionally it's like, how many hoops do I have to jump through to get this thing? You know, like, I, I mean, so, um, yeah, a year ago I, I was uh, just going to my physical and the, there was, there was some issue that, you know, there was, some, there was some paperwork thing. So my insurance company was unsure about my address because I've been moving around a lot of it overseas. And then like the doctor called the insurance company and then the doctor was unsure because the insurance company couldn't figure out where I'm actually living. And it was like, it was just this giant circle, just a circle jerk of like, people handing things off to each other and, I, and I'm trying to figure out how I can just go in and get my annual physical. I mean, I, I, and actually in the end, I did something similar to you. I walked in and I paid $150 and just got it. And that was that. Enough's enough, right? I just want to get on with my life here and my health. But then what's the yeah. point in having insurance? But here's the question. <laughs> Where would you rather be sick? South Korea or the United States of America? Uh, definitely South Korea. Definitely South Korea. No shit. And it's because the costs are low and the quality of healthcare is good. So, you know, I don't, you know, a lot of people like to say like, oh, the U.S., uh, you know, has expensive, you know, bad healthcare. I mean, I, I hear that a lot. And then they, you know, point to other places and say like, oh, Norway and Sweden are superior. They have great free healthcare, France, single payer system and all this. Um, I don't buy that. I mean, I think that is unfair to, to compare the U.S. to any, you know, any, smaller country around the world because the dynamics over in a place like Korea, which is pretty small, are just so much different, you know, from the the politics and the society and the culture of the US. Um, so over in Korea, they they do have a, a very strong healthcare system. Um, it's private, like they have private healthcare, they also have public healthcare. Um, but because it's so it's such a centralized country and so much of the country is only in the capital, it's easy to, it's relatively easy to set up and manage. It's pretty streamlined. So I could just walk in if I'm sick, um, you know, get my time at the doctor. I might have to wait a little while, but I just walk in and they just give me a checkup and then it's very cheap. You know, it's like $20 cause I, I paid for the Korean state insurance and then I'm out. Um, uh, the, I think the Koreans are very good at this kind of service because they're so socially cohesive. Uh, you know, like the, they are able to set up, you know, a, a broad healthcare system that works for a lot of people, uh, because that's the kind of thing that, you know, for them, it's a national priority. But, you know, America is this large, you know, multi-ethnic, multicultural, massive country with, you know, states have different powers and cities have their own powers. And, you know, we really, you know, we have this, the Jeffersonian idea of the state and not the federal government always, you know, calling the shots. So, you know, I, I just think, you know, what Korea has done with its healthcare. I, I don't think that the system in America is really attuned for that kind of thing, just because, you know, it, it, there, there would be so much more, you know, just so much more stuff to get through to be able to set up something like that. I mean, I, I do think that we, we actually, I mean, if, if you can afford it here and you're willing to pay the money, American healthcare is quite good. I mean, it is very good. And I've been to a lot of places. I would never want to go to a Chinese hospital again. Um, I would never want to go to a Turkish hospital again. You know, I, I I would never want to go to, you know, like I I lived in England for a while. There was the NHS um, that was okay, but 
I mean, I, I prefer the American healthcare because I could just walk in and pay and do things. I, I wasn't able to do that in England. So, you, you know, I'm just, just giving you some examples about how different systems in the world work. Yeah. I mean, our system's clearly effed up, but um, you can get taken care of here uh, if you have the money and that's great. The problem is not everybody does, right? And um, yeah, that's the problem. That's the problem. And, and, and I think we want to live in a society, you know, I, I love how hot everybody gets in this country when you bring it up. It's like, can we just take the heat out of it for a second and say, okay, look, when somebody in our, in our country gets sick or hurt, what do we want to have happen? You know, people get all upset. No, 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 forget all that. What just, what do we want to do? Yeah. Right. And if we can all agree that when that happens, that we want that person to be cared for. We want to live in a country where if you get sick or hurt, you get cared for. Okay, great. And then if you say we want to live in a country where if you get sick or hurt, that you should get a, a equally high caliber or capability or of, of care, right? Yeah. Regardless of your station in life and regardless of fill in the blank. Yeah. I think, could we agree to that? And then we have, a, then we can have an argument about how the fuck do we pay for it and how do we reform the system? But can't we start at a simple idea like that, that, that healthcare is something that everybody deserves and regardless of who you are, we want to live in a world where we take care of you when you need to be taken care of. Yeah, I agree. And then we can argue about how we pay for yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And deliver it for that yeah, matter. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, I, People say like, oh, you know, caring for people, it's expensive. But I mean, I think that uh, if we can start at that premise that people are cared for, then I think the natural outcome is, you know, actually that's going to lower price prices for businesses. You know, that's going to lower um, the the burden on society of, you know, having people who are sick and who can't get can't pay for health care. Having a sick population is not good, you know, for a country. Well, and every conversation is not an economic yeah. one. It has an economic component for yeah. sure. But to your point, what kind of world do you want to live in? Do you want to walk out your front door and have poor people dying of cancer on the side of the street? Is that what we're going for? I don't know. I mean, I guess a psycho, psychopath no, I want, would say yes. I mean, there are some people who might be okay with that, but not me. Yeah. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, listen, Jeffrey, clearly you and I could talk to each other about almost anything for probably 10 hours straight <laughs> we could set some kind of a podcasting world oh, record yeah. um is there anything else you'd like to touch on i think that's uh, good i mean i think we covered a lot of good ground there so it was fun though i appreciate that christopher well i appreciate it very much again thank you for writing your wonderful book i have no doubt it's going to be um it's going to be a smash and i i think you know you you've led a very best i can tell you've led a very interesting and engaging life and i'm glad you've taken the time to uh uh, tickle the keyboard and tell us all about, about what you've learned along the way. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, it was a lot of fun to talk and I'd be happy to, uh, you know, come on another time if you're ever around, but you know, I'll, I'll let you know if I'm ever. Absolutely. You're welcome back anytime. Absolutely. Anytime. Cool. All right. Great. Well, have a good evening over there. Thank See you, brother. You, Stay legendary. Well, there he is. Uh, the fascinating Jeffrey Kane. All right. We would like to thank, well, first of all, we'd like to thank you for hanging out. And of course, Jeffrey Kane, you can check out his new book. It's available now, Samsung Rising. And you can visit him on the internet at Jeffrey Kane, C-A-I-N.net. That's Jeffrey Kane.net. My good friends at One Life Fully Lived are here to help you dream, plan, and live your best life. 
During this crisis, there's a lot of people who are trying to work on themselves. And if you're one of those people, visit the number one lifefullylive.org today. Also want to remind you, if you like conversations like this, then you'll love my buddy, Eric Hunley and his podcast, Unstructured. Check it out wherever you get legendary podcasts. That's Eric Hunley. Now, do your people think your company is awesome? My friends at Socrates.ai are the leaders in digital communications hub. Imagine being able to talk or text any HR question into your phone and get an answer. That's Socrates and that's employee awesome. And right now, being able to communicate with your employees is critical. So visit Socrates.ai. And if you're looking to scale yourself, why not look at the power of a virtual assistant from a company that's been physical distancing long before physical distancing was a thing? My friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants, visit bottleneck.online today. And please, Don't forget our hospitals, our faith-based organizations and NGOs trying to make a difference in this crisis. Uh, And, uh, you know, one of the organizations that I deeply admire is doctorswithoutborders.org, Médecins Sans Frontières. They're the only NGO that's ever won a Nobel Peace Prize, and they're doing incredible work right now. Doctorswithoutborders.org. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly uh, we get created in a studio that does contain nuts. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Remember the sage words of Sam Jackson, who said, and I quote, stay the fuck at home. Listen to Lucinda Williams. Uh, We are produced by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. You can check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. It's one of my top favorites. Uh, Technical Awesomeness by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Thank you so much, Candy Dandy. You hold this whole thing together. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Robert Drake of Performance Supply in New Jersey. Sorry, Bobby. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Thank you to our healthcare heroes. Thank you to our supply chain and retail heroes. Man, do we ever need you. Please stay healthy, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.